0: The death of Bob Dole at the age of 98 this week has reminded the country of just how much Washington and the Republican Party has changed since the days he ruled the roost as Senate Majority Leader. Although a stalwart partisan who was once known as Richard Nixon's hatchet man, Dole also believed firmly that politics and government had a purpose, to get things done, to pass legislation that actually made a difference in the lives of voters. Even if it meant, as it almost always did, reaching out to the other side, listening and respecting what they had to say, and forging compromises. It's an approach that seems almost entirely foreign to capital life these days, where hot-headed partisans on both sides spend their time going on cable TV, lobbing blistering attacks against their political foes, and depicting their very existence as threats to the future of the republic. What has changed in American politics? How did we go from a Congress who once had leaders such as Bob Dole to today, where figures like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Warren Boebert suck up media oxygen? We'll talk to somebody who knew Dole well, and how politics was played then and now, veteran GOP strategist Scott Reed, who managed Dole's 1996 campaign for president on this episode of Skullduggery.
1: I do
0: solemnly swear... That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Iscoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News.
1: And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News.
0: Victoria Bassetti, our other co-host, cannot be with us Today. So, I have to say, the death of Dole does seem like a moment. I mean, a moment more, even more broadly than I was suggesting in that introduction. I mean, this was a guy who actually fought in World War II, was, you know, horribly injured in Italy and suffered for the rest of his life as a result of that. So, it's the, you know, the passing of the greatest generation is a part of the Bob Dole story. But I think the most meaningful one for all of us today is the difference in American politics between a dole and what we've got today.
1: He was the last World War II veteran to win the the nomination, the presidential nomination for either either party, I believe. I think he Um, may have
0: been the last, I was thinking George H.W. Bush.
1: But George H.W. Bush- Was before him. Was before him. So anyway, I mean- you're the point right. is he, yeah. he, you know, he kind of embodies sacrifice of that generation. And, you know, the, I, I can hear, you know, people rolling their eyes, uh, you know, because here we are, a couple of uh, grizzled old reporters <laughs> getting misty eyed about the good old days when, you know, people could just get along. And you know, the thing that's interesting about Dole was he was fiercely partisan. I mean, you, you mentioned um, that he was known as Nixon's hatchet man. He also famously or infamously uh, at a uh, presidential debate in 1976 when he was running with the uh was that yeah? When he was running for yeah, Ford. it was a
0: vice presidential debate. He was right. against Mondale.
1: And what did he say? He referred to Democrats to Democrat wars he kept to Democrat referring wars. To Democrat you know? Democrat yeah. wars. Um, and well, f- first of all, he yeah, After he said that and he got uh, savaged for it, he had that wonderful self-deprecating sense of humor, and, and he said, uh, "I was supposed to go for the jugular. Problem is, <laughs> I did it to myself." Um, yeah, right. So, but but the but the point is, is that you know there was a time in our Politics when you could be partisan. It was okay to be partisan. In fact, partisanship, you know, was the, the, you know, in some ways the grease of politics that ultimately led to getting things done. And that's what he did. That was the North Star for him, getting things done. And he crossed the aisle over and over again on incredibly important policies uh, that people are still benefiting from, putting Social Security on a firmer foundation, expanding food stamps, you know, so on. And And so forth. He was a a key
0: sponsor of the renewal of the Voting Rights Act. Something no Republican would touch today.
1: That's right. And um, you covered the '96 uh, presidential campaign uh, for the for the Washington Post, right? And you know, one thing I guess
0: '96 I was oh for Newsweek,
1: right, right, right. And I came to Newsweek in '96, so it was uh, it was at that time as well. And uh, you know, I guess people thought that Bill Clinton on one issue. Which could have defined that race, but in the end, didn't. Uh, which was character. You would have thought Bill Clinton would have been uh, vulnerable, right? Uh, because the administration was already scandal-ridden, and he had, of course, all of his personal character issues with, you know, the women and, and so on and so forth. And and Bob Dole, um, given what we talked about before, had kind of uh, you know impeccable character in in so many ways. But it didn't. It didn't turn on character. <laughs> it turned on the economy. And, you know, Bill Clinton was a masterful politician.
0: Right. He was. And we'll get into this with Reid. But in those last few weeks of the uh, 96 campaign, we started to learn (laughs) about the campaign finance scandals and all the shady ways that Clinton with his buddy Terry McAuliffe were raising money, renting out the Lincoln bedroom and uh, uh, all these shady characters uh, from Indonesia and China who were pumping foreign money into the uh, campaign. Many of them, you know, that led to years of FBI investigations. Nobody remembers this today, but multiple convictions of many of the people who um, gave big six-figure sums to help re-elect Clinton. And, and that's what led to, you know, Bob Dole's famous line from that race, the one that I remember, where's the outrage? Where's, where's, the, where's outrage? the outrage? And there wasn't at the time. Some grew over the, you know, as more came out, but...
1: Yeah, and, and as I recall, he was implicitly criticizing both the media and the voters for not expressing that outrage. The other thing that also speaks of a kind of the bygone era that, that he uh, represented, I, I interviewed him you know, at length one time, and it was after he left office. Uh, John Meacham had us doing one of these uh, Newsweek oral history projects, and so I went over to his law office in, in uh, downtown Washington to interview him about his World War II experience, where at, toward the end of the war he was grievously wounded in Italy, He served with the legendary uh, 10th Mountain Division. And I thought, wow, this is going to be a great interview. It's going to be easy, you know, because I'm just asking him to tell these stories. And uh, it wasn't going to be confrontational at all. And it was one of the hardest interviews I ever did because he didn't want to talk about it. It was like pulling teeth. And that was that generation that I just think felt, you know, a little embarrassed talking about themselves um, and talking about their own... You know, personal sacrifices. Uh, Yeah, I I got enough uh, for our oral history, but but I remember being struck at the time that he was—he just didn't want to talk.
0: Yeah. Well, it was not of people of that era and that generation, and particularly also, you know, those who were badly wounded, as he was in World War II.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of pain. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of a lot of pain and bad memories as well from from that. That time. Um,
0: before we get to read, I just want to take note of another death this week that um, really hit home uh, for for me and, and and you and for a lot of others, and that's Fred Hyatt, who was the longtime editorial page editor of the Washington Post. Fred and I were friends back in the day when um, uh, we were young reporters at the Washington Star, the uh, the late lamented second newspaper in Washington that closed down many years ago and we then we both went to the post and, and took different paths. But Fred was I I just been reading some of the accounts this week and the all the laudatory uh uh and well-deserved encomiums uh that have been given. And one really struck me by David Vondreli in today's post because it kind of goes with the Bob Dole story that you know we were just Talking about, and we'll talk about with Scott Reed, in that Fred, like Dole, was somebody who really did want to listen to both sides, to all sides, and was not fixed on his views, wanted to hear out others who had different perspectives. And there's a couple of lines in Vondreli's piece today that I think are worth reading. Many readers assume that the job of an editor is to dictate outcomes, help one team hurt the other. The rise of cable television and online platforms that embrace this model has fortified the image. As editor of The Post's opinion journalism for 22 years, Fred was the opposite of the Stop Clock Caucus. He questioned everything, starting with himself, and valued all candid voices. He understood that the roomiest space in journalism today is the frontier of fair play. Intelligent people grow tired of having their own ideas circulated, recirculated to them like airplane air, steadily depleted of oxygen. Fred had faith that a marketplace of ideas will fill with customers.
1: Yeah, he, and he was genuinely interested. He he wanted uh it it was not just about fairness. I think it was also about his own intellectual curiosity and I loved Fred. I wasn't as close to him as you were, um but I remember that I mean he was such a kind person uh, and such a breath of fresh air in Washington that could be so stuffy and and kind of pompous and the thing I remember is wh- when I was a rising editor at Newsweek, I used to get invited to these, you know, started getting invited to like fancier parties. And I was like... Something I tr- never was. Yeah, well, ahead, the, the, the riffraff was the riffraff was excluded. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, I mean, honestly, uh, I, was, I would go to those parties and I would be nervous and insecure. And so I, I, I started to look in the crowd for Fred because, you know, he was always kind, as I said, and humble. And you could be you could be yourself around him. You didn't have to like try to impress him because he was interested. You know, he was interested in what you had to say because he had this kind of you know capacious mind. And um, you can be as successful as he was, and as influential as he was, and still just be a good guy. And and that's what he was—a
0: good guy, but also on on many issues principled. You know, and Absolutely. those issues, human
1: rights. And he got and he got press. Yeah. I mean, he got a lot of criticism from from liberals who thought he was a a neocon for for uh, at the outset supporting the, the Iraq war. But he was he was principled in his support.
0: All right. Well, a lot to talk about with our guest, Scott Reed. So let's get to it. We are now joined by Scott Reed, longtime Republican strategist and the campaign manager for Bob Dole when he ran for president in 1996. Scott, welcome to Skullduggery.
2: Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, and sorry it has to be under sad circumstances, but um, you knew uh, uh, Bob Dole for many years. You worked closely with him. You helped manage his campaign. What stands out to you most about his life and what he represented?
2: Uh, I had an interesting relationship with Senator Dole because I had both first worked against him when I worked with Jack Kemp and then with him when he ran for the nomination and he won the nomination. And what was, what stuck to me is Dole was a man of his word. He was a real leader. People respected him. They trusted him. They listened to him, his colleagues. And to me, that was what was always the guiding light as we ran the campaign with him to make sure, to try to make sure that's what the American people saw, that, you know, I I used to kid around that if Dole gets elected, he'll be the greatest inbox president in our country's history. And I say that as a compliment, that if you brought him a problem, he'd been in Washington long enough at the highest possible levels, he would know how to work it out, how to get to a decision, how to get the right people involved. And um, I think that's a area that's kind of lacking today in politics. And I, like everybody, had been enjoying all these nice pieces. A lot of people are writing about him. And I think there's a real contrast there with what's going on in national politics today.
1: Yeah, I want to stay on that contrast for a second, Scott, because one of the things I heard uh, he would sometimes ask colleagues and colleagues in his own party when things had gotten more partisan and ideological was, what's your end game? That was the question he would ask. And what it, I guess what it spoke to was it's not just about acquiring power, right? It's how you use it. Yeah. Is that something that you saw in, in Dole? I mean, at the end of the day,
2: Dole cared about governing. He cared about getting things done. And I was in a few of those meetings with Newt and John Kasich and the firebrands and the Republican, mostly in the House in 95. And Dole would constantly say, Fellas, he'd let them all talk. And he said, Fellas, what's our end game here? And everyone stared at their loafers because they hadn't thought through if there was going to be an end game. And that as Mike remembers covering our campaign, that's when he started to get frustrated because it was just show for the sake of show's sake. And these are serious times and serious problems. So it was one of the lessons I've learned from him is, you know, what's your end game? What are you trying to get accomplished here? And if you can't answer that, you got a damn problem. And they had a real problem.
0: In the piece uh, you wrote in the Dispatch the other day, uh, you talked about how Dole became a great national leader, not because he inspired people with rhetoric, because he earned people's trust with deeds. He measured his success by the bills. He helped pass and measured himself against party leaders like Everett Dirksen, uh, Senate leaders like Everett Dirksen, Mike Mansfield. These were men who believed in Congress, who possessed virtues like moderation and recognition that not every concession is a defeat of principle." That seems like an attitude and an approach that is so foreign today.
2: Well, it is, it is foreign today. Look, he believed in governing. He believed in we're here for a reason. We've got to get things done. Look at the things he accomplished across the aisle with George McGovern. By the way, most people that read that piece didn't even know he had worked with McGovern on food stamps. No one even knew how food stamps started. Yeah. The ADA reaching across the aisle with Mitchell. I mean look, Bo loved politics, he loved the game, but at the end of the day, he loved getting things done for people. And I think that's what people saw in him was a guy that got blown up as a teenager, almost died, was almost left in the the battlefields of Italy. And he was able to claw his way back and take on a meaningful part of life in politics, serve his state, serve his country, serve his party, and rise to the highest level. And, and it is an American success story. And I think that's why this is such a worldwide story that, I mean, look, Mike, he outlived most of his colleagues. He outlived the number of of my colleagues. I mean, he made it to 98. He, he wanted to make it to hundred. He wanted to go back to Kansas on his hundredth birthday. We talked about it a few times and it's unfortunate,
0: but he had a great life. Life, you know, you talk about how he was a realist and a pragmatist, and I, I just want to go back to that '96 campaign for those of us with long memories because, um, he's running against Bill Clinton, and you know, there was a time after '94 when Clinton looked vulnerable, the Republicans, you know, swept back into take control of Congress, yet it was an uphill battle, uh, for you guys, and it was pretty clear. I think, you know, you didn't really have much of a chance. How did he process that? And you must have been frustrated. You're the campaign manager. You're still trying to win that race. Well, it was frustrating. You
2: have to remember there's two steps to the dance. First, you have to become the nominee before you can run in the general election. And we had a very contentious, hard fought, nomination fight against people like Phil Graham and Steve Forbes and Lamar Alexander and Pat Buchanan. And, you know, that was the first cycle where there was really outside money spent in the race where the AFL-CIO put up a lot of money to help Clinton in the summer of 95. Forbes used his wealth. You remember, he spent $75 million in 100% negative ads against Dole. So we were kind of getting it from both sides. My theory at the time was you win a nomination in a crowded field like that by taking people out one at a time until you get to a point where you're left with an unacceptable alternative. And that was Pat Buchanan. And that's exactly what we did. Graham went first, then Forbes, then Lamar Alexander in New Hampshire. Then it was a two-man race. Everybody saw the contrast. We won 32 elections in a row, and we were the nominee by April. Then you have to pivot to the general election. You know, a lot of stories, and you probably wrote 10 of them, Mike, about how broke the campaign was. Well, look, we had a simple decision. You have a certain amount of money in those days. I think it was about $43 million. That was it. That's what you raised and what you got from the feds. That's all you could spend until you got to your convention. And I had a, we had a simple decision in January. We knew we weren't doing well with undecided voters. We knew we were going to take a hit in New Hampshire, which we did. And we knew we had to recover in South Carolina. So we had a simple decision. Either you spend the money now and maybe win, or you're definitely going to lose and you'll have a lot of money left in the bank. And we made an obvious decision. Let's spend the money and go for it. Started advertising two months before the South Carolina primary. And that was our firewall
0: that's the nomination, but I, w- I was asking about the race against Clinton. Well, then about Clinton, look, it was very simple. What's the big takeaway? It's very hard to beat an incumbent
2: president, one. Two, when the economy is growing, and three, there's world peace. And that's what we were faced with the whole time.
1: Well, there's another thing that people s- sometimes say about that race, which is, I mean, Dole was up against uh, a politician who was sometimes called the natural That just the politics of it. I mean that 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 Clinton was a fantastic politician, just in terms of the retail politics, and that that wasn't Dole's strength, at at least by comparison. But he also famously resisted being, you know, handled and packaged by the image meisters and the consultants and the and the and the speech coaches. And so you would have been in the middle of that. Is is that right? And and talk about that dynamic.
2: First of all, Clinton was by far besides Reagan, the most charming presidential candidate of our lifetime. He would charm the birds right out of the trees every day when he went out. We got that. We knew what we were up against. But it was Clinton's policies that were out of whack in 93 and 94, which I think made running for the nomination in 96 worth running for. And I think that's what Senator Lowell saw, and that's why he ultimately decided to run. You know, nothing hurts me more personally as all these stories about, oh, if these... Campaign guys who just let Dole be Dole, he would have won. Well, we tried. We did the best we could. You know, a little bit, the media has a little bit to do with that on how someone's covered, Taking point three days after the loss. He went on Letterman and brought the house down. By the way, quite a contrast with Trump three days after he lost. But that was his real humor. And you know, the press didn't want to cover that. I get it. They wanted a race. They I get how you said in those days how you sold newspapers, and you started to get a few clicks. But that was always the challenge. And could we have done better? Of course, we could have done better. Do I wish we had? He didn't like to talk about his experience in World War II. That was a big lift to get him to do that. Most of these gentlemen don't like to talk about it, but we thought it was an important thing to do
1: to humanize himself. We should definitely should get into the the, the humor, the kind of mordant uh, humor, which which I loved and I remember well. But before we do, Dole made a decision before getting into that race that, you know, few politicians who run for president make these days, which is he decided to leave the Senate and leave his leadership role in the Senate. Um, and I think he said something like, you know, I'm either going to the White House or I'm going home. And I think that was a very closely held decision. I think you might have been in that inner circle how big a deal with, was that at the time? Why did he make that decision? And was it the right decision?
2: Well, first of all, it wasn't a decision that was made when he was deciding to run for president. It was a decision that was made after he won the nomination.
1: That's and right. That's right. I stand corrected.
2: In April, that he had a, a two, rule, two roles here. You were running the Senate, and you were also the party nominee for the entire ticket, all the way down to dog catcher but he really believed in that serious responsibility. And after we won the nomination, I want to say in April, we recognized that, and it was mostly Ted Kennedy on the Senate floor, was tying us up in knots. And you know, our problem with our campaign was we very rarely had two or three good days in a row before we had a bad day and we had to kind of start over. And you need to have a successive number of days and have a narrative that, that's driven, that the American people can understand to decide if they're going to vote for you. And we quickly recognized in April, and it was a very small circle, it was me and the senator, that this wasn't working. That him only being a weekend warrior, you know, working in the Senate Monday through Friday, and then going out Friday night, campaigning Saturday, Sunday, wasn't going to cut it. Now that we were the nominee, we had to unite the party. We had to get refigured with the party. We had to set the issues we were going to run on. And that was a big job. And so was running the Senate. So he quickly came to a decision. Uh, We had a discussion one night. Maybe I should leave the Senate and go all in. And as the campaign manager, it was refreshing to me because we were really hitting our head against the wall. and um, was a decision that was held very tightly. I don't think anybody else knew about it until the night before. And uh, we rolled it out on the next day quite well up on the Capitol. It was a big surprise. Dole loved the element of surprise. And I think one of the reasons he and I bonded as well as we did during the campaign and for the last 25 years since the campaign was he knew I could keep my word and I wasn't going to run around and yap. And um, that was a turning point. And it was what I call a reset. We tried to do a reset. Had some thoughtful people write some very thoughtful speeches and we tried to get out there and have I remember we went to Illinois the first day and he didn't wear a necktie. We tried to show that this was a, a, a serious commitment to a serious thing he had just won, being the party nominee, and he was going all in. Yeah. Now, some people didn't like it. Some people on the hill didn't like it. A whole lot of lobbyists didn't like it. <laughs> but sure. that's life because it again, it was what he was doing what was right at the end of the day. And he could have hung on and done both halfway and then gone back to the Senate. And he would have still been the leader. But it wasn't who he was. It's not how he wanted to do it.
0: You know, you mentioned before uh, the role of outside money in that race. And, of course, the, the money issue... <laughs> particularly on the Clinton side, you know, began to break late in that campaign where we started to learn about Indonesian money, Chinese money, all sorts of strange characters who had been um, pumping money into the Clinton on behalf of Clinton. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that's where the famous line, where's the outrage came from. Was that, now it, it really broke late in the race in the last few weeks in October did that make a difference? Could it have made a difference if more was learned early on? Or is it the fact that, look, both parties, you know, are tainted and guilty on this front then it probably was never going to cut with the public?
2: I think things were pretty baked by the middle of October. We had had three debates. We had We had done the convention, which united the party, made the race. I think it was a three-point race when we left San Diego. And then it went right back to seven or eight and it never really moved. The China money story was a big damn deal. And we got tons of that over the transom in October. And that was one of the reasons we made an attempt, and some people called it a feeble attempt, to talk to Ross Perot about his role in the race and maybe getting out of the race. And, didn't, and I-
1: didn't you, Scott, actually go on a secret trip to meet with? Perot and how did that? I went, on a,
2: I went on a clandestine trip, which is not easy to do when reporters are <laughs> parked outside your place every well,
1: day. Well, the, the, the news here is that you were able to do it without Isakoff finding out. So. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I, I don't even remember <laughs> this. What? I, yeah, so it's a great it, story. Tell us yeah. the story.
2: Uh, Ken, Ken Langone, uh, one of the founders of Home Depot, was our finance chairman. Great guy, very close to Ross Perot Sr. And he had told me all along, and as we were getting this China stuff, he thought, this may appeal to Mr. Perot. And uh, I talked to the senator about it. We had just finished the third debate. Nothing had changed in the polls. Nothing was rocking the race. And I felt I didn't, I, what have I got to lose? We were going to lose the rate we were going. So give it a shot.
0: So, wait, so what was I, the idea? You would you would get, go to I Perot? Fl- the
2: idea was to take all this data I had and all these pictures of all these Chinese men and women sitting in the White House across from Clinton where he was raising all this money with all the bedroom deals. And we had already been through, remember, Ron Klein's famous controlling legal authority with Gore. And I put it all together and went down to Dallas and tried to present it to Mr. Perot as this is serious stuff. You're a patriot. You love America. With all due respect, you're clearly not going to win this election. We could win this election if you got behind us and endorsed us and campaign with us for the last two weeks. It would rock Clinton and Gore and those folks, and it would change the projectile of the race. And what did he, he came- tell you? He, he said no. We, I was at his house till midnight. Langone and I kind of walked out with our heads in our hands. We presented everything. We, he had to stay for dinner. We talked through the evening. And he said, I'm not going to do it. And uh, that was kind of our last shot. But I don't regret, I don't regret taking it at all.
0: You talked about getting stuff over the transom. What if you had been tipped off to the fact that Clinton was having an affair with a White House intern, which he was at the time um, well, before the race? respect,
2: Mike, to you guys. I mean, when the Washington Post in the summer of 96 ran a picture on the bottom with President Clinton jogging with Eleanor Mondale, we all knew he was catting around. You, everybody knew he was catting around, and nobody seemed to care. Remember when he used to wear those short shorts when he'd go jogging his present? That was right on the front page. <laughs> Everybody knew what was going on in Chicago that night. Look, the, the Monica Lewinsky thing, in retrospect, you couldn't have made it up. And you couldn't have made it up that she actually lived next door to Dole in the Watergate.
1: Yeah. Oh, I didn't remember <laughs> uh, that. That's right.
2: <laughs> yeah, he, he ultimately bought her apartment and turned his and Elizabeth's two bedroom into a four bedroom. <laughs> uh, but you can't make that kind of stuff up. But I I think, you know, I think the press court knew what was going on in the Clinton world. Not all about Lewinsky. Don't get me. I'm not saying that. But there were other there was a pattern of behavior. It wasn't a big surprise. And nobody seemed to care. We didn't spend a lot of time on it because nobody cared. We weren't going to win an election on that.
0: Well, if you knew it was an intern and.
2: Well, I think the intern thing would have been a little bit of a a jolt like it was to everybody. But, you know, I still think the China money in the overnights in the Lincoln bedroom that McAuliffe did, and all that is as serious as anything that's ever gone on. I yes. continue to think that today.
0: Did you ever talk to Dole about uh, living next door to Lewinsky? Nobody knew who she was. Yeah. He wasn't a...
2: He didn't become famous for a couple of years. <laughs> yeah, no, we never did. Uh, it was just, again, if you were writing a novel, you couldn't make it up. But no, we didn't know that. We didn't know who she was.
1: I know we're, we're going to want to pivot to the Today's Republican Party, but I did want to ask you. I mean, he did have this wonderful, bone dry wit, and I wanted to just kind of ask you what your what you thought his kind of best one liners were. I, I have one that I was reminded of just reading up since he died, uh, which is I guess his 1980 presidential election where he got clobbered in New Hampshire. Um, I, I think I read he only he won about 600 votes or something like that, and uh, he quipped the next day that he, he slept like a baby every two hours I woke up and cried. (laughs) And it was that kind of self-deprecating humor that was so charming. But tell me about his humor and what you remember.
2: Well, humor was a big part of his life. There's no question about it. I mean, I I used to kid him about whenever, you know, we talked four, five, six times a day for almost two years. And whenever I'd get to something that he didn't really want to talk about, like a tough decision on something, he'd do the old, all right, Scott, gotta go. (laughs) gotta go that, that was that was my signal that's this is the end of this conversation and and we'll pick it up maybe later or tomorrow or never but um his humor was part of everything and it was you know it was a big impact on the staff It was a big impact on republicans around the country and um it was part of who he was and you know sometimes he maybe went a little too far and he knew he went a little too far and he made made that point clear but it was part of how he got through the toughest business in the world, national politics. That's how we got through it.
0: What's happened to the Republican Party?
2: I think the Republican Party's gone through almost a 20-year transition year that we actually saw glimmers of this with the Buchanan candidacy in 95 and 96, which started in 92 at the convention when he screwed it up for poor Bush. Pearl was part of this anti-Washington thing that Bill Republicans took over, Tom DeLay, the hammer, all that redistricting, Republicans did well in redistricting, made these districts two Republican or two Democrat. So you have Republican districts that are now plus 20 Republican or plus 25. So all that matters to a member of Congress is winning a primary. The general election, you don't even have to spend any money on. And I think it's just been an evolution which created the Tea Party, which created the opening for Trump. And now the party's going it's kind of like at a fork in the road, like Yogi Berra said. I mean, are we gonna do more Trump? But by the way, Trump did really well for this country on a number of things, the economy, judges, regulatory reform, energy, but the tone and, sub, and some of his substance was way out of line and we got killed. And he lost by 7 million votes, and he cost us the U.S. Senate. Think how different the country would be today if McConnell had 52 votes. None of this build-back silliness that Biden's trying to jam down everybody's throat. It wouldn't have even be talked about. It'd be, a diff- it'd be a different country.
0: Yet he still holds such sway over Republicans, certainly in the House, at the state level, In the Senate, not as much, but, you know, you don't hear, you know, pushback against the nonsense and the craziness um, that you would like to hear. Uh, And like, why is that? I mean, surely everybody can do the analysis you've just done and conclude whatever good he did, he's become an albatross for the party and he's hurt us deeply. I mean, yet we don't. Look, Trump.
2: Trump put his hand on the pulse of a big part of this country. And he can, and to them, he can do no wrong. I mean, look at the fact that 40% of the country thinks the election was stolen. That's a remarkable number to me. And I talk to smart friends like you do, and they think it's stolen. It was stolen. I'm like, what are you talking about? He lost. Move on. Look, people are going to be studying Trump for hundreds of years, not just 100 years. From the way he captured social media. To go around the mainstream media to everybody, to now the way he acts like an ex president. I mean, he took off after McConnell this morning. Ridiculous, way out of line, way over the top, unnecessary. But look, the problem with Trump as a person is you're either with him 100% of the time or you're dead to him. And everybody around him gets hurt. Everybody gets hurt except him. And that's what. Republicans are gonna to have to wake up to. I just wish they'd spend more time ignoring him and focus on recruiting better candidates to run in 22. We got a historic opportunity to win the House and the Senate. And then we'll worry about 24. I don't think Trump's gonna run again because I don't think he wants to be a two-time loser. And he would be a two-time loser.
1: Do you think if Trump were gone that things would kind of revert back to the norm? Or do you think that um, you know, Trump is a symptom of a problem in um, Republican politics right now, and that 40% of Americans that are enthralled to him will continue to drive politics going forward?
2: Well, first, I don't think he's going to go away easily. I think if he doesn't run, he will still continue to torture every Republican running. And the thing about Trump, I, I followed him for years. It, you know, what does he get mad at people about? He says this, he said it a couple of weeks ago at someone out in Mar-a-Lago, because you didn't give me enough credit for what I did for you. That's really sick. But that's his point of bone of contention with people. So look, in a normal campaign, you have a number of issues in front of you on a national campaign. For the next round of men and women that are running, you're going to have to put about 20% of your time into Trump. What is he going to think if he doesn't run? What's he going to say? Is he going to attack me? How's that gonna reverberate? I think it's gonna be a real challenge for everybody, but one day at a time. I do think he's getting smaller and smaller in the rearview mirror as time goes on. A lot of these candidates he's picked to run are stone cold losers. They may win the primary, but they won't win in the general. Look at what happened a couple of weeks ago in Pennsylvania with Parnell. He doesn't support candidates because of their agenda. Or their ability to be a good can, can, candidate, or to raise money, or to drive any message—it's who he likes.
0: Scott, look at Georgia—he's got Purdue in the race, you know, to knock off Kemp, um, pushing, you know, Trump's, you know, big lie about stolen elections.
2: Yeah, and Trump—what did he say a month ago? He thinks Stacey Abrams would be a better governor than Kemp. Well, guess what—he may get his—he may get what he wanted. Because by getting Purdue in this race, you're going to split the party. It'll be a circus, worse than it was in January when we lost those two Senate seats, which, by the way, was never even really analyzed what really happened, how bad it was, because January 6th overtook January 7th in the election, for obvious reasons. But this Georgia thing is an example. It's a disaster. I'm shocked Purdue's doing this. He's being used by Trump, and we could lose the governorship. He wants Stacey Abrams as his governor of Georgia. Great. He's probably going to get her.
0: Well, isn't that doesn't that push back against your idea that he's fading in the rearview mirror, because that's an indication he's still uh, a, a huge factor. I think he's
2: fading in, in many places. He's not faded in Georgia. He's not fading in Arizona. Look, Arizona is a potential pickup Senate seat. Two term, very popular governor, Doug Ducey's not running for the Senate. Why not? I don't know. I haven't talked to him, but it's probably because he doesn't want to mess around with Trump and have the carnival barker come to Maricopa County and set up a big tent and make fun of him for the next six years. I'm six months. I wouldn't want to deal with that either. But there are other places I do think he's slipping in the rearview mirror. and We'll see how the elections turn out. If He keeps endorsing candidates like Brighton's in Missouri, which he's tempted to do, I'm told. I think that's going to say a lot.
0: So game out the presidential in 2024 for the GOP, because uh, as long as he's out there, it kind of freezes everybody else. Nobody knows, you know, whether he's going to run or not. And, and, you know, whether to take him on as a party, (laughs) are Republicans basically just going to be sitting around waiting to hear the see the smoke signals from Mar-a-Lago?
2: Well, first of all, let's hope not. Look, having spent the years around Dole, one thing I did learn is, and I saw it in President Reagan, and I saw it when I worked for Kemp, and I saw it in H.W. Bush, if you're going to run for president, you are a driven individual. You don't do this half-assed. You are all in or not all in. And I think the number, there's probably eight or 10 Republicans that are now thinking about running. The first decision for about half of them is, does Trump run or not? I think the other half are going to run no matter what. Because who's
0: going to run even if Trump runs?
2: I wouldn't be surprised if Pompeo runs. I wouldn't be surprised if Mike Pence runs. I wouldn't be surprised if Nikki Haley runs.
1: What about Chris Christie?
2: I wouldn't rule out DeSantis. I wouldn't rule out Abbott in Texas. Christie is definitely going to run if he sees the opening that he sees now. And Christie has some pretty good skill set. He's a trial lawyer. He knows how to communicate. Every time he goes on a show, he makes national news. That is an asset, not a liability.
1: If it's a primary with Trump in it and Christie runs, and I think he might, he's got those talents. He knows how to go for the jugular. Would he really take on Trump in in the fashion that, who did he go after? I think it was Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio.
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) What advice would you give him in terms of how to take on Trump?
2: Well, I think he's already started that. I mean, with his book tour recently, which may not be selling a lot of books, but he seems to be on a lot of shows and he's making it clear, I'm not afraid of Trump and I'm not going to back down. If I decide to do this with my family, I'm going to do it. And, you know, I think that's healthy. I respect that. I wish more of them were actually quite that outspoken. But I I don't think, look, if 2022 is as good as this Wall Street Journal poll that came out today says it's shaping up to be, I think you're going to see a good year for Republicans, and I think this cast that I just rattled off, maybe with a Cotton in there, maybe with a Cruz, maybe with a Josh Hawley, it's go- and, and maybe with uh, the governor of South Dakota, you're going to see a strong field of eight or nine or ten candidates.
0: But which of them, other than, I mean, I get Christie can take on Trump rhetorically and get a lot of news play. I'm not sure it plays to your Republican base the, the voters are going to come out in a primary. And it's hard at this point to look at all the names you just mentioned and see one who can take on Trump in a Republican primary and win.
2: Well, first of all, one lesson that we learned in 2016 about Trump. If John Kasich had not stayed stayed in the race, you know, the savior of the moderate wing of the Republican Party, and made it a three-way race, which he did with Cruz and Trump. Remember, Trump had a ceiling of 41 in the primary. He never got above it. If Kasich hadn't stayed in the race, there's a very good chance Cruz would have beaten him. And he would have definitely beaten him at the convention because Cruz was organized and Trump was not. So it depends on the, the, the multi-candidates in the race and what sliver of the party they're from. It's too early to tell right now, but I think there's going to be a lot running. I think Pence's, Pence's stock has gone way up with conservatives in the last six months, not with the diehard Trumpers that he didn't overturn the election. He's never going to get them, but with real conservatives. Look what Pence is doing out there. Every three or four weeks, he pops up. He has something important to say issue-oriented to conservatives. That's how you put together the foundation of a race. And I think Pence is doing well, and I think Pence's stock is going up. Will he want to run against Trump and deal with the Trump factor? Who knows? We don't know yet. Who knows where Trump will be by then?
0: Is Biden gonna run again?
2: I don't think he is. I think he uh, recognizes that he's had a great shot. He's done, he's a very nice man. He's done as well as he can. I also think that Kamala Harris will get moved over to the to the Supreme Court next spring because Mm. they recognize she is a total disaster as vice president. There's no role for her. He can no longer salvage her and trot her around like Biden, like Obama did for Biden. And they're going to have to move her out.
0: I hadn't heard the uh, I hadn't heard the Supreme Court uh, option for Harris. Well, Breyer's
2: being pushed to leave. Yeah. Probably leave in the spring. What else would you do with Kamala Harris? Keep, her, keep giving her these assignments? I mean, it's, they've got to do something. And then it would lead to what does Biden do? Does he pick a former senator, a friend of his, as a caretaker VP who will not run and let there be a real down and dirty nomination fight? Probably that probably brings Elizabeth Warren back again. Bernie's too old. But who knows? But I think the first problem they got well, to deal with, they got to deal with today's short term problems but they have a Kamala Harris problem. You think uh, Pete
1: Buttigieg would be a serious contender and do you think he's a real a, a talent?
2: I think he's a real talent. I think it's very impressive how far he got running for president. Uh, I think he's a great communicator. I find this whole taking two months off for your new ch- ch- child, children, crazy. First of all, it's crazy that you guys in the press didn't notice he was gone for two months which shows how irrelevant he is as Secretary of Transportation. But you don't sign up for these jobs to say I'm gonna stay home for two months. I, I think back when I worked for Kemp as Secretary of HUD, we would never take a week off, let alone two months. I think Buttigieg is a, is a fave of a lot of people right now. I don't know if he can go the distance. I find the whole fighting with Harris, which is all coming from the White House, really quite entertaining and you guys probably do too. But there's a big difference between being DOT Secretary and trying to turn that into a nomination, but I admire his skills. He's probably the star of the cabinet along with the commerce secretary. Those are the two that kind of stand out that seem to be doing anything that matters. The rest, I can barely name in a lineup.
1: Back
0: to Dole. He, as, as different as he was from the Trump uh, from a Trump. He never spoke out against Trump, even after January 6th. And endorsed and, him. And, and he endorsed him in, in for re-election when a lot of Republicans of his ilk would not. And then, you know, stayed on somewhat unfavorable terms. How do you explain that? None
2: of that surprised me. Because at the end of the day, Dole's a party man and I don't mean party out at the bars, I mean he believes in the, believed in the Republican party. It was very, very good to him throughout his life. And his, I talked to him about this. Trump won, it wasn't his first choice, it wasn't his second choice, it probably wasn't even his third choice, but Trump won and we should all support the nominee. And if I'm not mistaken, he's the only former uh, nominee that went to the convention in Cleveland He was frail, but he went. He wanted to go. He liked to go to those things. And he thought it was important to support the nominee. Did he agree with everything Trump did? Of course not. And then his tone towards women and how he spoke at people, of course not. But he respected that he was the party nominee and he won. And by the way, he was a lot better than the contrast would have been if Hillary Clinton had been elected. Mm. But you do see what he said after the election. And typical Dole, I'm kind of trumped out. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, that means it was over. He lost the election. It was time to move on.
0: Just uh, you're coming to Washington uh, this week for the memorial service. Dad, tell us what some of the plans are for the next few days.
2: Well, my wife and I are coming up tomorrow night for Friday's ceremony at the cathedral, which I think will be really moving. Tomorrow, Senator Dole will be lying in rest at the Capitol with a number of all the leadership, and I believe President Biden will be attending that. After the ceremony at the cathedral on Friday, there will be a, a, an event at the World War II Memorial in the hearse on the way to the airport, where Tom Hanks is going to be the MC, and there'll be a lot of World War II vets, and that's a special thing. I mean, Donald raised $100 million. I got one of my clients to give him a million. He raised $100 million for that. It would have never happened if it wasn't for him pushing, and pushing and getting it done. So that's fitting. Then they're going to go to um, Andrews Air Force Base and fly to Kansas for uh, an event in a church. He's going to drive by his own home in Russell. And then um, he's going to come back to Washington, I believe, be buried at Arlington Cemetery.
0: Well, I want to thank you for joining us and uh, sharing your memories of uh, the late great senator. And um, I guess my final word to you is, Scott, we got to go.
2: Got to go, fellas. Got to go. (laughs) Got to go. (laughs) Got to go. All
1: right. Thanks (laughs) a lot. Thank you.